Hello, and welcome to the Public Diplomat Dialogue. I'm Guy Golan. As our listeners know, our podcasts are dedicated to storytelling from all around the globe. We record podcasts ranging from Indian cinema, photojournalism in Latin America, nation branding in Africa, counterterrorism in the Middle East. We even speak about gastro diplomacy, food diplomacy, fashion diplomacy, art diplomacy, etc. But today, in episode number 73, we want to bring the conversation back home, here, to the university campus in the United States, where something strange is happening. At these very rough times around the world where we're seeing wide-scale migration, tragedies in Syria and South Sudan, university campus students are being introduced to a notion that there's one nation that is the greatest threat to all, and that is the tiny state of Israel. This is a controversial topic, believe it or not, and today I would like to invite Professor Miriam Elman from Syracuse University's Maxwell School to speak with us about the BDS movement and what it means to students all around. Miriam, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. So, Miriam, let's begin. For the benefit of our listeners, can you please provide us with some background about the BDS movement, what it stands for, and what it tries to accomplish? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So uh, BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. It is a global movement. Many people think that this movement originated in 2005 as a call from various Palestinian civil society groups, but in fact that's a misnomer guy because BDS has its origins much earlier uh, in fact, right before 9-11, when the first planning conference for the official boycott of Israeli culture, academia, and Israel's economy was prepped in Iran, in Tehran, and then was unveiled at the 2001 UN Durban conference, uh, right before 9-11. And so BDS has its origins in a very anti-Semitic program that began in one of Israel's greatest enemies in Iran. A lot of people don't know that. Okay, so what is uh, BDS essentially trying to do? BDS often compares Israel to South Africa. So the argument is that Israel is a racist and apartheid state. There's really no distinction there, Guy, between the West Bank and Israel within 49 borders. BDS leadership will characterize Israel, Tel Aviv, as apartheid and racist in the same way that South Africa was, which is just ludicrous because Christians, Muslims, and Jews live together, work together, have enormous religious liberties, unparalleled in the Arab and Muslim world. So anybody who's lived through apartheid South Africa and the oppression of that time period knows for sure that Israel bears no resemblance, despite its warts, Despite discrimination that all democracies face, Israel is in no way, shape, or form akin to South African apartheid. It's simply a ludicrous, um, there's no evidence to it whatsoever. I like to distinguish between the leadership of this movement, which, by the way, has very few indigenous Palestinians as its members in the leadership. And the often very well-meaning people in the U.S., 
in parts places in Europe, in South Africa, in Australia, who will gravitate toward BDS because they're looking for a way in which they can help the underdog. These are social justice warriors, and they are looking to do good. And they see BDS as an effort to put some pressure on the powerful party, on what is being perceived as the oppressor, in order to help the oppressed. And so I do like to distinguish between the followers and well-meaning people and the leadership, because I don't think the leadership is interested in peace. I don't think that the leadership has a approach that is meaningful to understand both the rights, legitimate rights of both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. And I think that the leadership is quite frankly racist. So what I try to do is call that out and expose it and try to alert people to what's really going on here, but they may not understand that. Okay, but what are some of the key messages of the BDS? There's three essential goals that you'll see in all the messaging, in documentation, and in speeches, and sloganeering. Uh, And one of them is the return of all Palestinian refugees to their original homeland. So that's known as right of return, and it would mean uh, over 5 million Palestinians being repatriated into Israel, which would mean basically the end of a majority Jewish state. It would be another Arab country in which Jews would be a minority. And that's a really important point because the boycott will not end until Israel accepts the right of return not just in a sort of a principled position, but an actual return. So it's not the Palestinians having the right to a Palestinian state alongside Israel, but a Palestinian state instead of Israel. And it's important to understand that for the BDS leadership, Judaism is not peoplehood. Jews are simply a group of people who have a set of religious practices. They can live as a minority anywhere. So there really is, in the messaging of this movement, a denigration of Jewish identity. Uh, It's not only an attack on Israel, but it's an attack on Jewish identity. And that's why it really does impact Jews all over the world. The second one is a dismantlement of all the counter-terror measures that Israel has in place, including the security fence. So take down the wall is the second claim that's made in most divestment and sanctions motions and petitions. And the first one is full rights to Israeli-Palestinians, as if they don't have already full rights. They do have full citizenship rights. Uh, But that is the third goal, that there should be full civil rights to all Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship. Okay, so BDS is all around the world, as you said it, and for the most part, they enjoy very limited success. Israel's economy is on the rise, it's developing diplomatic relations all across Africa and Asia, and more and more states and uh, governments are passing anti-BDS legislation. So why is BDS such a problem on university campuses? So this is a very good point because, indeed, it does not seem as if the BDS movement will have a lot of traction on the Israeli economy. But what we are seeing is that it will have an impact on American and European voters, particularly millennial voters, who are being softened up 
for new policies that will be far less supportive of the Jewish state in the Middle East. And that's where BDS aims. In fact, it's moving Guy from the universities into high schools and into middle schools and even into elementary schools so that by the time young people come to university, they've already been softened up for a boycott pitch by their professors and by student groups like Students for Justice for Palestine. And they already have a very negative view of Israel in the region and a negative view of Israel in the world. So, you know, I think that it really is not an issue that impacts Israel as much as it impacts Jews in the diaspora and non-Jewish neighbors who, Mm. you know, will begin to look skeptically at their Jewish friends and co-workers. So let's talk about the university campus. Uh, A parent sends his or her child to a university. They come into a women's studies class or a Middle East studies class. What kind of BDS messages may these students be exposed to? Well, they will hear that Israel is to blame for horrendous mistreatment of Arabs and Palestinians. They will rarely hear from a BDS-supporting faculty member that Palestinian government or Palestinian society or Arab states have any culpability in the continuation of the conflict. They will rarely hear about terrorism. Sometimes they will hear that U.S.-designated terrorist groups are actually progressive movements of the left. They will hear that we may need to support these groups and these movements because they are resistance to imperialism and to Western apartheid and racism. And Israel is seen as the last bastion of colonialism. So it's all wrapped up in sort of a leftist progressive message that is very strong and striking in some fields of the humanities and in the soft social sciences. And indeed, several uh, academic organizations have either supported or brought forward uh, BDS um, resolutions before its members. Um, If I recall correctly, the American Studies Association, the National Women's Studies Association, the American Anthropological Association. What's the logic? What's the logic of academic organizations calling for the ending of dialogue with other universities? Well, you know, it seems bizarre, doesn't it? And, you know, if you want to actually model these strategies on the South African strategy, this is not something that was done in South Africa. In South Africa, actually, the academics who were anti-apartheid became part of the movement. They were not shunned. They were not ostracized. It's quite ludicrous because it's in the Israeli universities where you actually have anti-occupation faculty, where you actually have faculty on the left of center who could, you know, push the government for change. So why would you want to alienate those potential partners? I think the real reason is because it doesn't have anything to do with trying to foster peace or alliances with the progressive Israeli left. This is simply a racist, bigoted, anti-Semitic movement in which if you are not calling out Israel as a racist, apartheid, genocidal state, they want nothing to do with you. 
This brings up a recent article from the Washington Post. It was called Safe Spaces on Campus, No Jews Allowed. And it argued that Jewish students often are subjected to an Israel litmus test as if support for Israel disqualifies one from supporting social justice causes. Is this something that you've come across? This happens quite a bit. And you talked about some of those disciplines those disciplines in the humanities, which tend to be sort of normatively driven rather than evidence-based, won't use quantitative data as much as in the hard social sciences. By the way, Guy, BDS is non-existent in the sciences. There is no BDS in the hard sciences. And I think it behooves people in the humanities to try to figure out why that is. I think it's an impoverishment of their theoretical approaches and perspectives that they would harbor such a deep, racist, anti-Semitic perspective within their disciplines. Uh, but what we see for young people today, young Jewish kids who want to be part of the progressive movements on campus, they are actually being told you have to check your Zionism at the door. You cannot join us unless you are also anti-Zionist, unless you are also anti-Israel, unless you also sign on to our anti-Israel boycott initiative. Otherwise, we don't want to have you a part of our group. And it's very alienating to a lot of Jewish kids who feel strongly connected to Israel as part of their Jewish identity, do not want to give that up, and want to join in some of these progressive movements, Black Lives Matter, women's rights, gay rights. Those movements have been effectively hijacked by BDS activists. Marion, how did this happen? American Jews were always a part of progressive politics, from uh, labor rights laws to civil rights, to women's rights. What happened here? Well, I actually think it's a failure of the organized Jewish community, and I've said that to a number of people within the organized Jewish establishment that for 25 years they've been asleep at the switch. Uh, while this is happening, really not kept up those ties. Some of the ties you're talking about in terms of Jews and their attachment to some progressive causes have fallen by the wayside a bit. Our parents, grandparents' generation is a little bit different, and they weren't maintained as well as they could have been. And that created a type of way in which the BDS groups, uh, in particular, seeing themselves and positioning themselves as people of color, whereas the Jew is a white person, right? So that sort of binary that, in other words, the Jew and the Israeli are symbols of the white Western colonial imperialists, whereas the Palestinians are the people of color, and they have become the new Jews, right? Whereas the Israelis are the new Nazis. That Holocaust inversion is something that we began seeing about 15 years ago, and organized Jewish establishment was asleep at the switch while that was happening. This almost sounds unbelievable. Why is this phenomenon around campuses? I think that, you know, most of the people who are part of it and are activists on campus are coming from specific disciplines in which they're not really focused on security issues, let's say, or they're not focused on issues related to the war on terror or the war against ISIS. And so they don't really have a sense or can't even perceive the way in which Israel contributes 
to American security, to America's national security, to America's national interests. As you move into law school programs, political science programs, international relations programs, it's really not surprising to me that you find less and less BDS activism, because those are the disciplines in which students, graduate students, and then the young professoriate know how much the U.S.-Israeli relationship actually matters to U.S. national security and to the safety of American citizens. But in fields like anthropology, women's studies, American studies, they just don't have this training. They don't have the knowledge base. So it's very easy for anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist racists to refashion the way in which the Jew and the way in which the Israeli would be perceived in those disciplines. Miriam, some of our listeners may raise a legitimate question, and that is, does opposing Israel's occupation make you an anti-Semite? Or why do you call them out like that? Absolutely not. And we have to understand, Guy, BDS is not anti-occupation, okay? BDS is anti-Israel, anti-the right of Jews to have a homeland anti the right of the Jewish people to have self-determination. It is anti-Israel. But there is a very legitimate anti-occupation position. And guess what? A big part of the Israeli society vote for parties that are anti-occupation. That's the Israeli progressive Zionist left. But never let a BDS activist or proponent fool you into thinking that they are anti-occupation. They will say it. They will try to hoodwink you like a bait and switch. First, I'll get you because you don't care, you want the occupation to end, and then I'll soften you up for what I really want, which is the destruction of the state of Israel. But we really do need to distinguish between those who are Zionists but think that giving up land and withdrawing from land in the West Bank is a way to keep Israel a secure and democratic Jewish state. And the BDS movement, which has no interest in a secure and democratic Jewish state and has no interest in the Jewish people qua peoplehood. I get you. What is it like to be a professor who openly supports Israel during these times? Is there a political price to pay on campuses? So let me just say that to say I openly support Israel, I think, isn't exactly right. I openly support the truth. I want to see a robust and diverse approach and perspective on the Middle East and conversation on the Middle East. I actually don't advocate banning BDS. BDS is speech. I define it as hate speech. I think it's anti-Semitic anti-Zionism, and I will condemn it and stigmatize it as a form of racist hate speech. But I am a proponent of academic freedom and free speech, and I will not advocate or champion banning BDS. I will just present better speech than the BDS activists provide on campus. Um, much of my work, Guy, has been critical of Israeli policy, critical of some of the policies of the current government and of Prime Minister Netanyahu. That obviously does not make somebody an anti-Semite. Criticizing policy, criticizing society does not make you an anti-Semite. Anti-Semitism is not in the eye of the beholder. There's precise definitions, and the U.S. State Department provides those definitions. It's the demonization and the delegitimization and the application of double standards to the Jewish state. That's what makes you an anti-Semite. 
and the BDS movement has it in spades. Absolutely, and all across, especially California state universities, we see uh, there's a debate about a controversial course in Berkeley that pretty much disqualifies Israel. There is Israel Apartheid Week all around campuses. So despite the guidelines and despite the rules against hate speech, why is this still going on? Well, you know, I think that we have 250 U.S. campuses in which chancellors and presidents have pledged to the non-support of the academic boycott on the grounds of academic freedom and free speech. And those are institutional policies in place in well over 250 academic campuses. The question is whether individual faculty in their instructional practices are actually following institutional policy. And that's something I write on quite a bit. How do we get individual faculty to be in compliance with their university's policy that's on the books, which is against the academic boycott of Israeli institutions or Israeli faculty? Because as you know, I wrote recently a piece for Haaretz. We have a new phenomena called the stealth boycott or the silent boycott in which academics are privately deciding not to assign journals of Israeli authors, not to read graduate student theses if an Israeli has written it, uh, not to write reference letters, not to bring a postdoc to campus, not to hire an Israeli, not to bring an Israeli speaker out. And so this is sort of a happening you know, behind the scenes. And I think administrators and other faculty have to step up and say, this is in noncompliance with our institutional policy. And you can advocate for BDS, but you have got to make a distinction between that advocacy and your instructional practice and your instructional policy. And Guy, it's important to remember, discrimination on the basis of national origin is illegal under federal statute and under most state statutes. It is illegal to discriminate on the basis of national origin, just as it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of gender, race, sexuality. It's illegal to do this, okay, which is why so many anti-BDS resolutions and bills are passing our state legislatures. It puts us in compliance with anti-discrimination laws that are already on the books. Very good. And uh, Miriam, we're almost running out of time. Can you quickly speak about the Academic Engagement Network? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Guy, the Academic Engagement Network, or the AEN for short, is a very new organization. It's one of the newest organizations that are actively working to combat BDS on campus. It was founded in December uh, 2015 by the former president of the University of California, who was also a First Amendment rights expert. And his name is Mark Udoff, an executive director from Michigan State University, Ken Walzer. And together, in just a little over a year, they have amassed 130 faculty across multiple universities across the country. And we all work for the same thing, which is to fight for academic freedom and free speech. Everybody's free speech, including those who advocate for BDS and those who oppose. And we want to see uh, speakers from a whole viewpoint diversity brought onto our campuses. 
so that students can listen and hear from a multiplicity of perspectives on a variety of issues. And we also try to create a robust, evidence-based discourse on the Middle East and on Israel. And we are members that are on the left and on the center and on the right. It's a nonpartisan group. And I think we are trying to educate people, faculty and administrators. Very good. Professor Miriam Elman, political science from Syracuse University, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Guy. It was a pleasure. Okay. And for those of you who want to learn more about Miriam and her work, you can follow her at Miriam Elman at Twitter. And for our listeners, give us a like, subscribe on Facebook, on Twitter. We're always at the publicdiplomat.com and public underscore diplomat on Twitter. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day.